So our scripture reading, Exodus 24, 1 through 11, you can find it in your bulletin, on your phone, in your Bible. Then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning to all of you. It's so good to see you here in this new venue. I'm so excited about this passage of Scripture. As, as most of you know, if you've been coming to Lake Baldwin Church, that since Easter we've been going through the book of Exodus. And we've just gone, gone chapter by chapter. But it's, um, it's almost like if you're watching a Netflix series and there's episodes that you didn't get to see it actually helps to know sort of the arc of the story and what you've been through. And then you can go back into any section and you can, you, can under, you can orient yourself because you're right there in that Exodus story. So we are actually gonna dive back in this morning to one of the lost episodes in the book of Exodus. It's one that we didn't cover in our series, but I've been saving it for today. I knew that we would be here at Winter Park High School I knew that as a church, we want worship to be central to our church. And in a way, this passage is going to serve as kind of a tuning fork, like when you're tuning an orchestra. The idea here is to tune us to the biblical rhythm of worship, to the biblical pattern of worship that we see in this passage. So I think it's very uh, relevant to today, very relevant to where we're going as a church if we really believe that worship is central to what we do, there's a lot that we can learn from this passage. I want to read a quote from you for you from Phil Riken, one of the commentators that have been very helpful to me in studying Exodus. He said, Exodus 24 is one of the most important chapters in the whole Old Testament. It lays out the biblical pattern for worship. It's a tuning fork for us. And it was the first worship service and where this falls in the book of Exodus is it's right between the giving of the Ten Commandments or the giving of the law in Exodus 20 
and Exodus 40, which we talked about last week, or actually that whole section, 25 through 40, about the tabernacle where, where God descended on the tabernacle and he dwelt with his people. So this worship service falls between those two things. Now, why is this important to you and me this morning? Well, did you know that you were created by God to worship him? It was the French physicist and philosopher Pascal who said there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person that cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the Creator made known through His Son, Jesus Christ. The Westminster Catechism from centuries ago is, follows a question-answer format, and it's this long document with all these amazing truths and, and what they mean, and so it's a great thing to look through and to review the teaching of the Bible on major doctrines, but the very first question in the Westminster Catechism is this, what is the chief end of man? In other words, why were we created? The answer to that is that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now you're saying, Mike, I, can you prove this from the Bible? I want to hear it straight. If, if we were created to worship God, I want to hear it straight from the mouth of Jesus. So inside your bulletin, inside front cover, there's a quote where we quote Jesus from John 4.23 where he's talking to the woman at the well. Listen to these great words. Think about how the fact about the reality that you were created by God to worship him. Jesus said this to the woman at the well. He said, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. In other words, God wants you to worship him. God wants us to have a relationship with him. That is why he created us. Now, one of the things that distorts worship for us now, this is true all around the world, but I, I'm, an I'm an American, so I think of specifically here in America, is that we live in a consumer culture, and so almost everything we do is a consumer enterprise. When you shop on Amazon, it is a consumer enterprise. I have some friends that went to see Dave Matthews' band yesterday over in West Palm. That's an event. That's a consumer enterprise. When you go to the movies, it is a consumer enterprise. When you go out to dinner, it is a consumer thing. And so it only makes sense that you and I, I included, we can fall into this trap of viewing worship as a consumer enterprise, but what we're going to learn from this passage, because the passage is about the reaffirmation of the covenant that God makes with his people, in other words, the relationship that God makes with his people, we want to have more, instead of a consumer-oriented view of worship, we want to have a covenant view or a relationship view of worship, and so that's part of what's going on in this passage. We're going to use the word covenant, and you're going to see the contrast of it. Now, there are several things that worship does for you, though. I want to talk about that. You were created for worship, but think about, think about this for a second. Worship both fills us and forms us. Worship fills us and forms us. You could tell by some of the songs that we sang this morning that in a way we are being filled as we worship God together. That happens through the means of grace, the preaching of the word 
the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and baptism through our singing and through our prayers because the Holy Spirit is working through the means of grace and he is filling us. And that's important because a lot of us come out of our week feeling empty and we need to be filled. So one of the things that happens in worship is that worship fills us. But I wanna let you know of a second thing that happens in covenant worship and that is that worship not only fills us but it forms us, it shapes us. Jamie Smith talks about this in his book, You Are What You Love, and he talks about how what is happening is that there are competing loves all around us as consumers, and so what God wants to do in worship is he wants to use, it, use worship to form us and to shape our loves for him, so that's part of what's going on. And for that to be true, you have to have, worship needs to be an immersive experience. It needs to be an experience that you engage. Over the last four and a half weeks, Molly and I have had our, uh, our daughter, uh, Amy, and her husband, Greg, down from Washington, D.C. They have two daughters themselves, so we got these two granddaughters that were here with us for all these weeks. One of them is, I think, two and a half, another one's over three years old. And so one of the goals that our daughter had for her two daughters was that they would take swimming lessons. And so there's a pool near us, and what they did was they got an instructor, a swimming instructor, to take these girls, giving them swimming lessons for two weeks. Every single morning that Amy took her daughters out to swimming lessons, they would scream in protest, not wanting to do it, just screaming. Then they'd get in, and that instructor knew just what to do because the instructor, you can't learn to swim from a book. You can't learn to swim just from watch, watching. It's got to be an immersive experience that you have. And so what happens is, in the pool, day after day, that instructor is tossing them in the water. They're going under the water, and they're learning to paddle back. And over time, they were being taught swimming techniques. And by the end of two weeks, what was amazing is that you could have taken one of these little girls and pushed them off the side of the pool into the water. They would have gone under the water and they would have swam, swam to the side. In other words, it was reflexive. They had been formed by the swimming lessons that they took. And for that to happen, it had to be an immersive experience. And so this story that we're gonna go through, what it highlights is that for us, worship is not a consumer event. It is an immersive experience that is designed to fill you and is designed to form you. Uh, one of the things that the kids who just left and went out the door, one of the things that happens when they go out to Splash is they have something called uh, imagination station, narration station, and memorization station. So why do they do that? Why do they have imagination station? Because one of the things they want to do is to capture the imagination of the children. Why do they have a narration station? So they can hear a story. So what is going on with that? Well, in this passage that we're gonna look at, you and I this morning get to have an imagination station because there are, there are statements in this passage that will play with your imagination, that will fix something in your mind that, is, that are designed to capture your heart that God has given as an immersive experience to engage us and to capture our imagination. I wanna give you two examples from the passage. One is you may have noticed while Chelsea was reading that there was this part where Moses built an altar and then there were these sacrifices, there were the burnt offerings and there were the peace offerings. And so what's going on there? Well, that's, that's a stunning 
thing to encounter in a passage of scripture in a worship service and a covenant ceremony is you have this altar and you have these sacrifices going on in there. So it is a vivid, it is a vivid thing for our imaginations to see that in there. The other thing you may have noticed that when they went up to God, Moses and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders, they went up to God and they saw God. There was this like sea of, of, of like sapphire blue clear crystal glass. Once again, it is a vivid experience. God is giving them an imagination station to imagine things, what it's like, and that is in the Bible for us. And not only that, we have in this chapter a story. We, we are having a narration station because this morning, as we go through this text, we're going to immerse ourselves in the story of this passage. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna go back into this text, <clears throat> and I wanna encourage you this morning to keep your finger on the text in your bulletin because that's gonna allow you to imagine and to see these things and to understand these things, and we're gonna look at four elements of a worship service from this story. So let's look at the first one, and that is the call to worship in verses one and two. So why don't you look at that in the passage says in 24, verses 1 and 2, Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. So look at what's happening in the story already. They're getting a message from the Lord. They're being called by God to come up and worship. Now when it says worship there, I don't think they... Uh, I don't, I don't exactly know what they did to worship. They, the word worship means to fall prostrate. So they're coming to fall prostrate before God to acknowledge his sovereignty and his power and his beauty. We know from Exodus chapter 15 that they sang songs after the Exodus. And we know from Psalm 100 that you come to the presence of the Lord with singing just as we do here. So maybe they sang, maybe they prayed, maybe they did, did other things, but they were being called up to worship, and it says in verse two that Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. So let's talk about this for just a moment. The first element of worship that we see in here, we're gonna call it the call to worship. The call to worship. And if you follow the form of worship that we use at this church, we begin every message or every, every worship service with a call to worship. So what is going on with a call to worship? when Mark stands up here and he says, hey, we're gonna begin by reading this passage of scripture, What's, what is happening there in that call to worship? When you think about, and Jamie Smith talks about this in his book, You Are What You Love, when God calls us to worship, one of the things that remi reminds us of is the creation. In the creation, God spoke and he created us and he called us into existence. He called creation into existence. So think about for that for a second. When God is calling you into worship, the creator is reenacting the fact that he has the power over you and he called you into existence and you recognize that he's a creator. But not only that, under the new covenant, God in the New Testament, God has called us to new life through the power of the gospel so that this morning, if you're a believer in Christ, what happened was you responded to the effectual call of God through the power of the gospel and he called you to new life. That is an amazing thing. 
And so what we get to do as a church when we gather for worship, one of the constant elements of worship is going to be a call to worship. That is the king inviting us into his presence. He is our creator, he is our savior, and he calls us. So what does that, what does that mean for us? Well, I think that Sundays are, are a real challenge for us. Now, one of the things that the book of Exodus does is it talks about the idea of the Sabbath, what we now call the Lord's Day in the New Testament, at one day in seven, set aside to cease from our labors and our jobs and to worship God. And even to cease so that we can worship God, to cease from our recreations. And for a lot of us, that is really difficult to do, but God has given us that as a gift. He's given us the Lord's Day for that. And we used to, as Molly and I over the years, we raised four children who are all adults right now, and just like a lot of you, we would go through the struggles, the challenges of what, what worship really meant for our family and what worship meant for our children. And so the, the challenges we would have is our kids would have sleepovers the night before, we would, be, we would struggle kind of getting everything organized and getting to church on time and all of those types of things. But one of the things we learned is that as a family, we could begin to organize our weekend so that we plan to worship God. And one of the things I would encourage you to do if you're a parent is to teach your children about the importance of the call to worship. Go home after the sermon and explain to them what the call of worship means, and then decide as a family, and I know that's gonna be, you can't always do it perfectly, and of course we're not monitoring that, but within your own heart, think about the call to worship, being here for that call to worship. And one of the things we used to do on Sundays, just to make it special for our kids, that was the only day they got to eat Honey Nut Cheerios was Sunday morning. And we would, just, we would just look forward, it's Sunday, we're having Honey Nut Cheerios, and by the way, we're also going to church together, and we would organize ourselves as a family. So I would encourage you to teach your kids about it, I would encourage you to plan on it. It's different from being a consumer, because in this case, the king is calling you into his presence to worship him. When you go to a movie, you go, well, gosh, it's just the previews. We're going to miss that, but we're going to be there for the movie itself. So a lot of people think about that. Well, if I just get there in time for the sermon, but the sermon is not the worship service. The whole thing is the worship service, and it's the king inviting us into worship. Let's go to the second thing that we learned from this passage. The second theme in this passage is the reading of the word, the reading of the word, just like what uh, Chelsea Street just did for us and just like we're doing right now, talking through the word. But I want you to notice how it happened in this story. So let's immerse ourselves back into this story. Look at verse three. Moses, oh, by the way, in verses one and two, you may have noticed that only Moses could go in the presence of God. That's because Moses was their mediator and they worship God through Moses. He had this priestly role. That role is gone. We have Christ now as our mediator, and all of us, all of us have confident access to come into God's presence. So it's different, it's better, it's more expansive under the new covenant. Anyway, back to the second one, the reading of the word of God. Look at verse three. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now what's going, in this going on in this passage? I mentioned that Exodus 24 comes after Exodus 20, which was the giving of the law. So when it says here, 
all the words of the Lord, the Ten Commandments is referred to as the Ten Words. And so what Moses is doing is he's making sure that everybody in that worship service could hear the Ten Commandments and the Ten Words. And then it was also, when he talks about the rules, what that's probably referring to is between Exodus 21 and Exodus 22 and Exodus 23, there were all these there was all this case law, it was the application of the Ten Commandments to real life. And so what Moses is doing is he's establishing something in worship that the people of God are people of the book. Notice what happens in verse four, it's really cool. He says, and Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. And so this is the first example of the Bible being written down. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, the first, the, the, what we call the Pentateuch, and the words were written. We are people of the book, and the words have been inscripturated. And so throughout the centuries, God's people have been people of the book. Now, we don't just have the Old Testament. We have a much more, under, much more expansive revelation of God. So you look at the stage up here. If we were to close the curtains and they were narrow, you might see, well, at first you just see a little bit in the book of Genesis about God's redemptive story. But then the curtains would open up a little bit more and you get the book of Exodus and you get the Ten Commandments on all the case law. You open up a little bit more and you get the Psalms and you get the Proverbs and you get the, all the prophets of the Old Testament. And then you open it up all the way and you have the full story. You have the Gospels, you have the book of Acts, the epistles, the book of Revelation. And you get the whole narrative arc of scripture, the whole story of the Bible. And what God has called us to do is to inhabit that story and to learn that story so that we are strengthened in the face of competing stories that are out there in the world, such as consumerism. So the word is written down. There's one other thing I want to mention that's going on in this passage. Remember we said that this is a covenant ceremony. This worship service is a service of covenant renewal. Now, what I want to do is I want to define the word covenant for a moment because I want us to love that word. When you think of the word covenant, think of a relationship that is based on a promise, a relationship based upon a promise. So for example, when people get married, they take covenant vows. It, marriage is a covenant and you take vows in that situation. That's what's going on here. The people say they hear the word and they say everything that we've heard we will do, they are taking vows. And so what happens is in a covenant relationship, you have this idea in marriage, you take vows. The, the same, you, have, you have covenants in uh, residence associations. These are written agreements. A covenant is an agreement that says this is how we will relate to, the, to these agreements and we promise to keep them and there are rules and there are penalties for breaking them. So that's what's going on in the covenant here. God is forming a covenant relationship with his people and so that's why you see this idea here that God's word is proclaimed and then they, they respond by saying all, the, all these things we will do. It is a, they are making their covenant promise. We do that here, we do that in church. When we have an, a, an infant baptism, what do parents do? They take vows to raise their children in the, uh, in the instruction of the Lord. They take vows, we take vows. As a con congregation, we stand, we say that we will assist these parents in the nurture of the faith of these children. This is one of the beautiful things about church membership 
is that what happens is we take vows. We take, but we acknowledge that we're sinners. We confess our faith that we have received Christ. We say that by the grace of God, we will seek to obey God, to live as becomes the followers of Christ. We take vows to support the church and its worship and work. We take vows to practice the purity and the peace of the church. These are all things that we're doing as a covenant community as we are taking these vows, and it is a, it is a beautiful thing. So think about that's what's going on here is the word of God is, is the word of God is preached. God speaks to us through his word, and we respond with our promise of obedience. Now, it's a funny thing here in this story. So we've covered two elements of worship, right? We've covered the call to worship, probably followed by some singing and stuff. And then we get to the word, and these people say they're going to obey all the words of the law. Well, you and I know that we are covenant breakers. We know that the people of Israel who are making all these grandiose promises themselves are going to make an idol in, in, in later on in the book of Exodus. We know that they're going to violate God's law. So they're, they're taking these vows, but they're going to violate it. And you and I can so relate to that because we are all covenant breakers. And so that leads us to the third thing that we see in this passage is what God does about that. It's the idea of confession and forgiveness. So now this next section, I want you to specifically follow along, keep your finger on the text, because there's a few ideas here that might be the types of ideas we don't always talk about, but it, it, it gets at the heart of gospel-centered worship. So let's follow carefully You'll notice at the end of verse four, read again verse four, and Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord, and then look what he did. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. So Moses built an altar. This is back to the imagination station. I want you to imagine that altar. Why did Moses build an altar? Well, the way in the ancient world, the way that covenants worked is that the two parties of a covenant would make an agreement, there would be promises made on both sides, and if the covenant was broken, there was a penalty. So, for example, a king might make a covenant with conquered people, and he says, I will do these things for you, and they take vows, they say, I will do these things for you, but then there is a, there is a blood covenant that is made that signifies that if I break this, there would be the penalty of death. And so this is actually something from the ancient world. Now you and I know that we can break agreements today. You can, you can get a speeding ticket and there's a penalty for that. There are breaking of commitments that we make. I just noticed all these people at the Olympics, we had one uh, Olympic sprinter that was disqualified for smoking cannabis. Just, just the other day there were two athletes that were sent home because they took a tourist excursion into Tokyo because they had broken their vows to not do that because of what's going on in Tokyo. So there are, there are penalties for the breaking of the covenant and that is what's going on here. Now, here's the grace and here's the good news of the gospel because look at what Moses did after he built that altar. Look at verse five. It says, and he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Now what's going on there? Didn't we say that the party that broke the covenant, there would be a penalty of death, and that's what it was. 
But what God is doing here is he is graciously providing a substitute in the form of, for example, peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. What's going on here? God himself is making provision for the covenant, the breaking of the covenant relationship. Instead of the people being sacrificed, he is giving them a substitute in the, in the form of goats and rams and these sacrifices. That is a beautiful picture of the gospel because what that signifies is reconciliation and forgiveness for covenant breakers. And that's what's going on here. And you'll notice in verse six, Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood and he threw it against the altar. What's going on? Why would he throw blood against the altar? Why would he sprinkle the altar with blood? Well, one of the reasons for that is God is a just and holy God. And so the penalty for sin is being paid. That's called atonement. We talked about that last week with the mercy seat. But then you'll say, then it says in verse seven, then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all the Lord has spoken we will do and we'll be obedient. Notice what he says in verse eight. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And so he sprinkled the people so that they could experience cleansing and forgiveness. So there's two sprinklings of blood here. There is the atonement before God and there is the cleansing of the people. You guys, this is the gracious provision by God of a substitute. Now you go, you go well, why do we not do that anymore then? Why, why does that happen? Well, the book of Hebrews teaches that Christ for us became the once and for all sacrifice. So we have no more blood of goats and lambs. We have no more altar. We have no more sacrifices. We have no other sacrifice that has to be made because the once and for all sacrifice of Christ has paid the penalty for all of us and Christ has become our true substitute, the true substitute to which bulls and goats could only point we have that today and we rest in the forgiveness that's offered to us by Christ. Now, how does that apply to our worship service? Where do we, where do we get to do that? Well, one is in the confession, the corporate confession of sin, when we acknowledge our sins before God. What that does is it, it strips us of pretense and it, it brings us to God in total honesty and it also strips us of our pride and our self-righteousness when we come before God and corporately, con corporately confess our sins. But after we've confessed and we have that silent confession and Mark says, why don't you all stand? We are hearing the good news of the gospel. We are hearing the announcement of the gospel. We are hearing that atonement has been made, that our sins have been cleansed and that God has forgiven us. And brothers and sisters, that, that is what makes a gospel-centered worship service. Because you could come into a worship service and we, can, we could just, we could, Mark and the band could perform for you. They could do a bunch of jazzy songs. It'd be consumer-wise, it would be amazing. And I could get up and I could give some really helpful principles about marriage and finances and success and work and all of that. But bypass 
the gospel. The gospel acknowledges that you and I are covenant breakers. We are more sinful than we ever imagined, but we are more loved than we've ever dreamed. And so a gospel-centered worship service points us to Christ and his sacrifice for us instead of our own performance and our own self-righteousness. So the grace of God is a beautiful thing. And I love what it says here in verse Eight, it says, Moses took the blood, threw it on the people, and he said, behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. Now, where do you hear those words? Where we, we, it's when we have communion. We say this, because Jesus taught us to say that, this cup is the new covenant, the new covenant in my blood. And you might say, well, hey, they got to be sprinkled by blood. Why don't we get to be sprinkled? We do. It happens in baptism. When, when a person is baptized, what's happening is that sprinkling there, we say that that water represents the cleansing blood of Christ. Remember, it's imagination station. It is visible words. That's what sacraments are, and that's what they do. And it is just a beautiful reminder of the gospel whenever we have a baptism. One more thing in this passage. So we've talked about the call to worship. We have talked about the giving of the law and the whole teaching of the whole Bible and the response to that. We've talked about covenant renewal because of the altar and the sacrifices and what Christ has done for us, how that makes it gospel-centered. And then there's one more thing. We've talked about, that was confession of sin. There's one more thing, and that is to come into the presence of God and have a meal with God. Now look, look again at this story. Go to verse 9 because again, this is imagination station in this story. Verse 9 says, Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. They saw the God of Israel. Now, when commentators look at this, they go crazy because you're not supposed to be able to see the God of Israel. He's too, you would be destroyed. He is too holy. Ordinary people cannot see God. But it says they saw the God of Israel. Now, they might have gotten a glimpse of his glory. It could have been a theophany or a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. But they, what the, but they couldn't describe it. They didn't even try to describe it because they were probably prostrate before him. And so look at what they do describe. It says in verse 10, they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the, like the very heaven for clearness. So sapphire stone to be this blue stone, ordinarily kind of foggy, it is crystal clear right here, and you just see this, this beautiful vision of this relationship with God. And uh, as I've studied this passage, I've been very helped, as I mentioned, by Phil Reich, and he talks about this. What is going on here is that they are getting a preview of the coming attraction of when we will all see God. In a way, when we gather for worship, we see God through eyes of faith. We see God through his word. We see God in the, the visual representations that he's given to us. But 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says that when Christ appears, we will see him as he is because we will see him face to face. And so the ultimate destiny of this story and the ultimate destiny of worship is to be in the presence of God and to see him face to face and that will happen in the consummation, and they're getting a foretaste of that here. And not only that, look at what else happens in this, in this amazing passage, verse 11. The writer says, and he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people. Uh, 
It's understood that the reason it says that is because people expect people to be destroyed because because God is holy. It says, no, God didn't do that. God didn't lay hand on the people. It says they beheld God and they ate and they drank. Now, we don't know what they ate and drank. We don't know if it was, you know, kind of leftovers from the sacrifices of the oxen and the, the, the offerings that were made. We don't know if it was bread and water. We don't know if it was bread and wine, but they ate and drank. Meaning, this is one of the themes throughout Scripture, is they had table fellowship with God. And the way we do that is in the Lord's Supper because Jesus, under the new covenant, has given us a meal. It's not an elaborate meal. It's a meal for every socioeconomic status. It's a, it's a meal for all age groups. It's a, it's a meal for all cultures. It is a meal that Christ has given so that we would be able to look back and what he did for us on the cross, but it also says the meal is so that we can look forward to the second coming of Christ and the return of Christ and we will see him face to face. This is a beautiful story about this meal. And so as you and I think about the meal that we're about to have, we too, the king is inviting us. He invites us in the beginning of the service with a call to worship, and now we get to have a meal with him. And so we're gonna do that. This is, again, this is an, ex- this is an experiential thing. This is like my grandchildren learning to swim. This is immersive, and that's what worship is about, and that's what we're, ca- that's what we're calling you to engage in. So the Bible teaches that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, the Bible says that Jesus, and what a great reminder of Exodus, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this bread, this bread is my body, which was, forgiven for, which was given for you, the once and for all sacrifice. And then he says, in the same way he took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. So as those communion cups are being passed out, which are our COVID-friendly cups, we have gluten-free, we have grape juice, we have wine. We've actually gotten some new and improved ones. But we're gonna take a moment, and we're going to come before the Lord, and we're gonna share in this feast together. This feast is for anyone who has put their faith in Christ as their substitute. If if you've not yet done that, we would encourage you to hold off until you've sincerely put your faith in Jesus Christ. As we do, like the people of Israel in their worship service, we are actually going to stand and confess our faith as they did. In your bulletin, we have the Apostles' Creed, and so I invite you to stand at this time and let's confess our faith together. You'll find it on the inside back page of your bulletin, actually the page right before that, the Apostles' Creed, and we're going to confess our faith together out loud. Christians, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, 
the holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Lord, we come before you this, this meal where we get to eat and drink with you, even as Moses and the leaders of Israel did, and now we can do it under the new covenant based upon the gospel of Christ, and we give you thanks with all of our hearts that though we were more sinful than, the, than we ever imagined, that we are more loved than we've ever dreamed because you have made provision for us, and we give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.